Another edition of On the Line, a podcast that brings to light stories of work and struggle from BC's rich labour past. I'm your unflappable host, Rod Mickleborough. Today, we go all the way back to 1918, to a strike by a group of feisty women laundry workers in the midst of the terrible Spanish flu epidemic. You will hear an account of the strike from one of the women who took part in that long ago struggle. Intense class struggles and political action of the first two decades of the 20th century were not confined to men. Although there were far fewer of them, working women did not refrain from joining existing unions or forming their own. It wasn't easy. Toiling long hours in small, scattered workplaces made organizing difficult, but they proved equal to the challenge. And when they had to hit the bricks, they gave as good as they got going after strike breakers, and doing whatever else was necessary to prevail. The strike by Vancouver laundry workers, most of whom were women, is a good example. Union Made, written by Woody Guthrie about women trade unionists, is one of Woody's most well-known songs. This version is sung by the great Peggy Seeger. There once was a union up with their paltry pay and poor working conditions, laundry workers began to investigate joining a union in the spring of 1918. One of them was Ellen Good, who started working at Pioneer Laundry when she was just 15. She was interviewed by Sarah Diamond in 1979, a few years before she died. We worked 10 hours a day, sometimes 60 hours a week. From 19... 14 till 1918, when we decided to form a union. It must have been really hot. And it was. Hard work. And you know, in those days, we didn't wear the loose clothing that we do now. And uh, we wore undergarments, which was always starched, and a starched uniform. Conditions were also dangerous. Accidents were frequent. Ellen remembered a fatal tragedy in 1919. Was it 1918 or 1919? The early part of 19. The Peerless Laundry 
had what they call the drum mangles and it had a cracked cylinder and it, it was leaking steam and uh, the engineer was a personal friend of ours by the name of Lake and he reported to the management to close the machine down that it would blow and if it blew it would scald well they closed it down and they fixed it up and Lake Jack Lake said I'm off the job he said I won't handle it he said because that's gonna blow and so he he quit and when the, in a day or two afterwards the thing blew and there was four girls, well, one was killed, and three were scalded. And we had a job to get the peerless laundry into our union. But when they heard about the sheer fatality on the girls, we took up a fund. We collected, and we took it over to the family of the deceased. And then the peerless laundry came in pretty well 100% in our union because the union had stepped in and helped them, you know, what I mean, when they needed it. In fact, another woman also died in hospital from her burns. Five others were badly scalded but survived. A coroner's jury did nothing more than state that the company's engineer should be censured for allowing machinery to operate knowing it to be unsafe. There was not a word directed against the company. Meanwhile, as union talk escalated, Ellen recalled one person in particular who spoke to the laundry workers about the benefits. We had one driver by the name of Victor Midgley, who was a driver. And he was about 10 or 12 of us, talked it over, which I relate to my father, who advised me to go ahead. Midgley also happened to be secretary of the Vancouver Trades and Labor Council, and later that year, one of the leaders of the city's 24-hour strike to protest the shooting of union leader Ginger Goodwin. Helena Gutteridge was also in the forefront, relentless in her drive for women's suffrage, social reform, and trade unionism. The English-born activist had been elected president of the Journeyman Tailors Union of America in 1914. Later, she was the first woman elected to the executive of the local labor council, which appointed her laundry organizer. By late July, more than 200 laundry workers had signed union cards. The next month, the International Laundry Workers Union accepted them as Local 37, covering seven city laundries. We set up a, a meeting with uh, some of the delegates of, uh, or officials of different unions, like the uh, shipbuilders, the engineers. They came and more or less gave us a summary of what we could expect and what we would go for. And uh, it was unanimous vote. I think there was about 250 men and women there because we, we had men working that was washers like in the washing room. 
But contract negotiations, led by Gutterich and international president Herbert Shuttleworth, ran into trouble over the union's demand for a weekly wage of 1395. On September 3rd, the hard-nosed laundries issued an ultimatum. The workers had five days to quit the union or leave their jobs. At a mass meeting at the Labour Temple, which still stands at Homer and Dunsmuir, union members voted to strike. Picket lines went up the next morning on September 9th. 80% of the 280 strikers were women, many of them young. Despite virulent opposition from the laundry owners, they gave no quarter. The trade union movement rallied to the cause, holding dances and whist nights to raise funds. Unions were also asked to kick in donations from their own members, and many did. By the end of October, the strike fund was close to $7,000. That provided strikers with $7 a week and a decent $15 a week for those with dependents. The laundries tried to lure Chinese laundry workers away from their own workplaces, but not one crossed the picket line. When people worried that unwashed laundry might increase the spread of the deadly Spanish flu, the union took out large ads in the newspaper with a remarkable offer. So, uh, the unions run an ad stating that we would man any laundry free of wages 24 hours a day for people with the flu in their home, which we received no response for. We wanted to man the general hospital, which was working the 10 hours a day. We wanted to go in and finish the 24 hours a day to keep the hospitals sanitary. But there was no response to it. On the strike front, steam engineers, who were in a different union, walked out in sympathy. One laundry was forced to shut completely, while the other six tried to operate with reduced hours using strike breakers. The strikers didn't make it easy for the scabs, who were often met with rotten tomatoes, heckling, and large crowds outside laundry entrances and exits. They used other tactics too. Ellen Good. The longshoremen used to come up, and the peerless laundry was the worst, I think. And they used to line the girls up inside. And then they would bring private cars, like the bosses' cars and that. And the girls would get into them. And then they'd take off, you see, and they'd drive them to the nearest uh, streetcar. But we had some of our longshoremen that would come along with their hooks. And they would give the signal and they'd rip a tire. And while the air was going up, we were doing all the yelling to so as they wouldn't know, and of course they would drive off and they'd have a ripped tire. And this time, uh, a group of picketers was coming back from the appealists. They didn't have money for car fares, so they walked. Some of them were on the bridge and coming on to Granville. The other half had crossed over and was going down Pacific towards the Star and Pioneer. And they started to yell there. I was on the corner of Pacific and Granville. I was not in the... But some man 
came along and he said to me, you're an innocent bystander. I said, in a sense, I'm still one of them. And there was a shop on the corner and he pulled me in. And he said, get in here, here comes the police. And they took in about eight, but <clears throat> the judge didn't. They had to appear before court and I went to go to, go to hear the court hearing. And uh, they wouldn't let me up. The police barred me going up. Of course, I think they knew me like, you know, and knew that I was on the executive and things like that. And they said the case was going to get thrown out anyway. So about 15 minutes, the girls came down with a, a reprimand from the judge to, to act like ladies instead of hooligans. Not all strikers got off so lightly. Ellen recounts what happened to striker William Joffrey when a young female strikebreaker was accosted by picketers. It's just come to my mind of uh, the injustice of some of our courts. An event happened with a girl that worked in one of the in one of the laundries, and she walked with a limp. One evening, she was coming down Richard Street when some of the picketers met her, and they started to holler and carry on, and she ran up the steps and into the Holy Rosary. Amongst the picketers was a driver, a laundry driver. He went up about four steps and tried to quieten them down, but he was taken in and he was given two years because the court claimed that he had crippled this girl by chasing her. So this driver, I can't remember his name, spent two years for something that was uncalled for. But the laundry workers did stand by him, and for the two years that he was in jail, they gave him a laundry driver's wages, union wages. One thing is that justice is not always given where it should be. Navish union was wise to the tricks of company spies. She couldn't be fooled by companies too. She'd always organize guys. She always got her way when she struck for better pay. She'd show her card to the National Guard and this is what she'd say. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm on one occasion, the Cascade Laundry was surrounded by a huge crowd. What the newspapers called a near riot ensued. Strike breakers were threatened. Some automobile doors and windows were damaged. A few stones were thrown. When police showed up, they were jeered for helping the scabs. Ellen had a few close calls herself with police. I know I had been picketing over at the Peerless Laundry and came across Granville Bridge and was going down to the Cascade. I went down and the, there was a policeman walking around there. But I didn't see him. But some girl came out on the fire escape, which was over the sidewalk, and emptied a teapot which nearly hit me, and I called up to her and told her a few things. And from nowhere, this policeman arrived. 
and accused me of causing a disturbance and told me that he had told me there was to be no hollering. I tried to tell him that I only just arrived there. And I said, if that girl came down here, I said, I would show her what I would do. But we had a haven. And the lane behind the Cascade Laundry was a vacant lot owned by a private ownership, which they turned over to the laundry workers. The union men, various unions, put up a shanty for us because we struck in the worst time of the year from September to January. We had a stove and a coffee pot and things like that that we could get in there and get warm and still go back on picket. So I knew if I could get onto this here lot, the policeman couldn't take me off without a warrant. So I made it. And he kept me there for five hours until a longshoreman came along. Some of the girls notified the longshoreman, came along, backed the car up. I got in the back seat and we took off before him. But I stayed for five hours on there. Amid growing public support for the laundry workers, the provincial government intervened in the dispute and a tentative agreement was reached on wages. But only one of the laundries agreed to the union's demand for a closed shop, the sticking point for so many strikes before unions won legal rights in 1944. Nor would the steam laundries agree to hire back all of the strikers. Strikers met to discuss the terms. The Deputy Minister of Labour actually sat in on the meeting, confident a majority of workers would accept the deal despite the lack of a closed shop. Instead, reported Labour's paper The Federation, there was, quote, such prolonged cheering and clapping of hands that there was no doubt they knew what they wanted and were determined, unquote, to stay out. And some good news lay ahead. The Provincial Minimum Wage Board held hearings to set minimum wages for women in select occupations. Three strikers, along with the tireless Helena Gutteridge, traveled to Victoria to testify before the board. Their testimony so moved the board, they imposed a weekly minimum wage of $13.75 for all women engaged in the laundry industry. That was only 25 cents below the strikers' demand of $14 and even higher than the increase accepted earlier by the union. That made it hard to keep fighting for the closed shop, and laundry workers ended their inspiring four-month strike in early January 1919. But that wasn't the end of union support for the laundry workers. 80 strikers, 60 women and 20 men, were not rehired by the vindictive laundry companies. After a pitch from Helena Gutteridge and with the strike fund grown to $12,000, the union movement provided financial assistance to all those blacklisted until they found work. A truly extraordinary example of union solidarity and an illustration of just how much the formidable laundry workers had touched union hearts. So though we had lost our strike, we had gained in many ways because there was many industries and workers who were working for very small wages. We also then went out 
to organize and to bring women that belong to the unions towards the front to take a, a more active part in it. What matter that the strike was lost The fighting is further on The ladies take the lesson home to husbands and children The crime to ask for a real life The judgment blacklisted As for Ellen Good, she eventually found work at Excelsior Laundry, which did have a closed shop, and where she stayed for a number of years. She kept active in her union and the Vancouver Labour Council, and later with the CCF and NDP. She remained proud of her part in that groundbreaking struggle. I hope you enjoyed hearing this eyewitness account of the laundry workers' strike that took place in Vancouver more than 100 years ago. Yet another chapter of city history that should be better known. Thanks to the other members of the podcast crew, Patricia Weir and Donna Sakuda, and to John Mabbitt for putting it all together. Special thanks to Sarah Diamond for her interview with the indomitable Ellen Good. One more thing. The BC Labour Heritage Centre offers teaching materials for high school classrooms on the 1918 laundry workers strike. The materials were prepared by Janet Nichol, whose original research brought the story of the strike to light. They can be downloaded on the Labour Heritage website and at Teach BC. I'm your host, Rod Mickelborough. We'll see you next time on The Line. Onward.